Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rieken. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the show. show. Fabulous. Okay. Are you ready, Ted? I'm ready. We'll <laughs> rock this out. <laughs> so, Ted, what are we talking about today? Well, today, Courtney, we are really fortunate to have with us Dr. Jillian Roberts, who is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Psychology and Leadership Studies. And Jillian wears many hats. Uh, I've known her for years, and she is a, uh, amongst other things, uh, best-selling author. She is an app developer. She has uh, published a website called Family Sparks that is uh, very successful in terms of uh, reaching out to the community. She's an active clinical psychologist with a specialization in child psychology. And she has just recently published a book that we're going to be talking about today called Kids, Sex, and Screens, Raising Strong, Resilient Children in a Sexualized Digital Age. So welcome, Jillian. It's nice to have you here today. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And can you lead us into your book? You were showing us here in the oh, studio. Oh, yes. Well, it's been a very exciting week. Um, this week, Kids, Sex, and Screens, Raising Strong, Resilient Children in the Sexualized Digital Age, uh, came out, hit bookstore shelves, um, and I'm really excited to talk about it and share the inspiration for the book. Mm-hmm. So where where are we with kids and sex and screens? Because normally you wouldn't think of those as having any, ideally, those wouldn't have any kind of intersection. Right. But yeah. there must be, and thus the book and the, the concern. Yeah, there's there's a, a, a huge intersection and danger. Um, so I've been seeing children clinically uh, since the late 1990s, and um, early on in my career, there were, were different kinds of referral questions, different reasons why parents and schools uh, were reaching out to me. Uh, I would say over the last five to seven years, I've seen a real shift in the, the reasons for kids coming becoming more and more um, precious, more and more critical to their overall development. Um, and I realized that we needed to do something, prepare parents in a different kind of a way to be able to successfully navigate those challenges. And so when I was looking at the book, um, I just thumbed through it, it is super accessible. And that's something that I always like to talk about because I always like to have an accessible thing. And you were talking about a seven points on there and the compass. Are you able to elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Um, what I did is I thought of everything that I had learned clinically and what I had learned through my own research. And I realized that it was uh, multifaceted and inaccessible and difficult uh, to communicate in a really simple way. So I decided to make it accessible and make it um, more easily um, communicated. So I synthesized all that information together into uh, the seven-point parental compass. The, the compass, the main purpose of the compass is to strengthen the parent-child bond, to establish parents, situate them, position them as the go-to person in a child's life. So if a child has any kind of question, their default is to be to go and ask mom or dad about it. But parents needed some help um, because these conversations need to ha- happen at a much earlier age than before. 
and many parents didn't grow up where there were uh, easily accessible things online or Mm -hmm. sexting or online bullying or social media. So parents are having to navigate through a parental landscape that they didn't live through themselves. Um, And so there's all sorts of different challenges, I think, for parents. The seven-point parental compass was designed to get the best information to parents in the most accessible way. And it seems like you've done that incredibly well looking over the book. Congratulations. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Are you, is this putting you on the spot to, to kind of walk us through the seven points of, sure. the, of the compass? You probably have them ready in your I, in your mind? or, or? I do have them ready. Um, so the, the first parts of the compass are really um, about prevention, getting parents ready uh, to handle whatever situation may come at them. The latter points of the compass are around building resilience so that if a child should um, stumble on something or have some kind of online negative experience, they're better able to bounce back from that, from that moment um, without you know, their understanding of sexuality to be skewed or damaged in some way. And so the seven points of the compass include start early, which is um, designed to get parents becoming more comfortable talking about these topics uh, at at an earlier age. And in the book, there's different um, pointers and things to think about at different age groups, like how how to communicate that with parents. Um, Next is give unconditional love. So that's really about making sure that if a child does stumble on something, that they're not being shamed by their parents, that mm-hmm. the parents aren't responding in a way um, that pushes the child away, but rather responds in a way that pulls the child closer to them. Uh, the third is stay current. Uh, and what stay current is about is making sure that parents are aware of the online influences that are affecting their children um, and that they're a participant in their parents' online world. So um, when you give your child that first device, that there's some kind of understanding that if they're on Instagram, that you get to be an Instagram follower. Mm -hmm. Um, If they're at Snapchat, you're a Snapchat follower. um, So that you're able to to be aware of what's going on and what their online influence is. And it's not necessarily to spy on the child, but rather to be a, a participant. After uh, staying current is setting smart boundaries, so helping parents understand and establish a healthy understanding of boundaries right from the very early age. Um, And in in the smart boundaries, I talk about different boundaries. I talk about online boundaries versus um, staying true to yourself, very personal boundaries. Number five is nurturing relationships. I find that children are are too much online and too focused on what's happening online, mm-hmm. and they need to have time where they can put down that device and nurture real-life relationships. Number six is losing stigma and prejudice, which is making sure that parents not only are comfortable talking about sexuality, but if the child should come to them and talk about um, uh, the, the brother or sister of a friend that has come out, that parents find a way to do- talk about that respectfully in a way that, that sets the child up to have an inclusive worldview. Mm. And finally is building resilience. All the things that we can do, so that's the seventh point, all the things that we can do to put like a Teflon coating around our child so it may go out into the world no matter what they might see or stumble upon. They're going to come to you and you're going to debrief it with them uh, and and they're not going to have um, a skewed or unhealthy um, perspective of, of sexuality. Right. Beautiful. And you're doing a series of talks related to this as well. Um, that's coming up in, in um ac- actually we we've been we've been doing them um throughout this year 
uh, at St. Margaret's School, there's a free public lecture, a free public lecture series uh, on each point of the compass. So I've already uh, done start early and give unconditional love, but the remaining five points are going to be um, rolled out one uh, one point at a time per month uh, until the end of this school year. The first two. Uh, starting early and giving unconditional love, have have been videotaped and are on both the St. Margaret's website as well as the Family Sparks website. Well, that's great. And we can put a link to those at the bottom of the um, mm-hmm. the Learning Transforms podcast. So if people want to access that, that's, that's tremendous. Mm-hmm. Great. And so why for you, and I know you touched base on it a little bit, but you are, so you're in academia, you're doing a lot of research. You're also in the field as a clinical psychologist. Um, you're doing Family Sparks. So there's a lot of stuff that you were doing and you're a very busy woman. So creating this book and doing this um took a lot of effort for sure. And do you want to talk a little bit more about um, what, like I know you were talking about having in the last five to seven years, you've seen a shift happen. Mm-hmm. Do, are you able to talk a little bit about what you saw there and why you put, this is a lot of work. Why did, why did you do this? Yes. Um, well, what I have found is that children are given devices earlier and earlier. Um, and with with the the giving of a device needs to come some boundaries mm-hmm. and some understanding about what is good online activity and what is not good online activity. So I would say 15 years ago, my advice to families was to have the computer in the kitchen where, you know, the family computer, like the desktop, um, that you could always see what people were doing online. It was clear. It was transparent. And then we got Wi-Fi which means that there's internet accessibility everywhere and there's easy ways of just tapping into free public Wi-Fi as well. And then the devices became mobile. They fit into your back pocket. They can go with you anywhere. And that means also that you can access um, Wi-Fi anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, and then I've noticed that, that kids are getting savvier and savvier about how to get around parental controls. Mm-hmm. So I, I've had kids tell me, well, the parental control is the Disney circle in, in our home. So when I'm not at home in that Wi-Fi scenario and I am on somebody else's Wi-Fi, I can access anything I want. Um, I've also had kids where their parents have put uh, really strong parental controls on Safari or Firefox, um, but kids have figured out how to download a different server like Chrome, watch what they want, and then delete it. So mm-hmm. no one can see, you know, the cash history. So kids have gotten, you know, really, really savvy about how to access the content that they're curious about. And I think, you know, it's totally natural and normal to be curious about sexuality, uh, especially in that tween teen age. So we need to do a better job of making sure that when children are given that first device, that there's a plan in place, a social media plan. There's some discussion around being a good online citizen. I actually have a children's book coming out this spring called On the Internet that um, is is for children talking about um, uh, good online behavior. But it's it's not just about not posting, you know, you know, provocative photos of yourself. It's also not sharing provocative photos of other people, you know, not liking embarrassing photos of other people, um, you know, not not sort of furthering somebody's embarrassment, um, um, but rather helping to contain embarrassment when it when it and might happen. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's the reality of, you know, 
knowing kids and knowing teenagers and knowing youth, they're going to look, they're going to find a way to look at what they want to look at, Mm -hmm. right? They're going to find a way, you know, when people talk and I, you know, I remember being that age and I was very lucky because I had a mom who I could go to, Mm -hmm. who um, I had a whole bunch of books that I could look at and ask her questions. And so it was easy for me to get uh, truth, Mm -hmm. right? About what was happening and what people were talking about. But a lot of people didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in some ways, my mom became that person who like disseminated knowledge to my friend group because Mm -hmm. I would ask her, I'd find out that information, I'd share it with my friends. What a wonderful mom. I'm very lucky. Shout out to my mom. Um, But, you know, for a lot of people that doesn't happen. And I think, you know, the parental controls, people think that that helps stop it. But the reality is, is that these, like youth are going to look at this stuff. They're Mm going to find a way to look. And if they don't look, they're going to look on their friends' phones or they're going to look at everything else. Mm -hmm. And so being able to provide them that safe space where they're able to get the answers that they need and they're able to start to understand what boundaries and limits are and why they should have how to be good citizens online and why they should be able to have that difference between um making sure that they're not online constantly and that becomes their world right there's Mm -hmm. other there's other things in the world to look at is a wonderful thing and i think a lot of parents get lost a lot of my friends who have kids don't even know where to start absolutely yeah i i would say that parents um i've i've met some uh, parents some mothers that have never seen anything other than a Playboy magazine. So they have zero idea of what it is that their children might have seen. Um, And uh, parents that maybe never had the conversation about the birds and the bees with their own parents. um, So they, they have no idea how to have that conversation with their own children. I would say that there's like a huge generation gap between this generation of kids and what they need and this generation of parents and what they know how to give. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a generation gap, but there's also something about this technology, and I haven't thought it all the way through, but there's something that happens when we go into an online environment where you know, we find it necessary to caution kids, uh, don't post photos of yourself that are revealing or compromising on the internet, and don't show photos of other people that are in the same mode, and yet you, you you wouldn't think that you'd have to do that same thing when you send your child off to school. If she had a picture of herself in a revealing situation, she wouldn't be walking up and down the hallway mm-hmm. saying, look at this, look at this, and, and exposing herself to in that kind of real world. But somehow in the internet and online, we don't think about it. It's It's a bit like the comments that we read in these blogs or on the CBC or wherever, people speak to one another in the internet world in ways that they never would face to face. It's it's like a the online equivalent of road rage. You get in a car and all of a sudden your personality transforms there's, under the right circumstance. Yeah, there's a kind of anonymity, right, mm-hmm. that people feel. And uh, trying to explain to children that a boundary is crossed whether anybody knows it was crossed. Yeah. Like it was crossed. And when you've crossed a boundary, it's easier to cross other boundaries, yeah. and it's difficult to uh, keep yourself safe or to backtrack to you know a different level of, of boundary if you've passed it. So uh, it matters, even if nobody knows, even if nobody saw the image, it matters that your boundary was crossed. And it matters what kind of a person you are, whether you are a kind person that only likes and shares nice photos or you're someone who's trolling someone else and and doing things um, on purpose to embarrass a friend. So it matters. Mm -hmm. You know, integrity matters even when no one is watching. 
And it's important too, especially with these types of conversations. Also, you have to look at the gendered aspect of it too, right? Like Mm -hmm. patriarchy and misogyny is alive and well, and that is exacerbated on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have a niece who I love and cherish and she's in her teenage years. um, And that's scary for me Mm -hmm. because I know, I know what that's like to be on the internet. And I know what it's like to have sometimes hate come at you in a very, in a very misogynistic tendency. And so, you know, but the reality of it is, as you know, I was scrolling through her Instagram feed, just looking at the different pictures and the ones that gets the most likes, the ones that she gets the most responses to are the ones where she's posing. She's not, thank goodness, she's not, you know, in a in a way that I would have to worry about. And her mom is pretty good about that. Um, but it is the reality is that sometimes on this Internet and in this digital age, what you get likes for, what you get that um what you get responses to often are photos that are more sexualized or are more um, risque or do cross boundaries or do do that type of stuff. And so making sure that these young people, when they get exposed to the internet, have that balance in check. They understand who they are and they go into that realm with that nurturing from their parental units about what that means right to be a good person on and off the internet is so important and it's critically important um it's it's important that children develop uh, a kind of understanding of what is the most respectful way of being in the world in person and online mm-hmm. uh, and that they help other people you know be yeah. the best the best version of themselves um and and that each child is a, a kind of ambassador for peace and inclusion uh, online. And yes, I, I would I would say there's there's a, a definite kind of change in what makes you popular. Mm-hmm. you know I, and I would say like Instagram likes are kind of like old-fashioned Valentines. Like you know on Valentine's Day you'd mm-hmm. count up how many Valentines you got and the person with the best Valentines was the most popular person in the class. Yeah. Whereas now it's you know how many likes are and shares are, are you getting online? And kids are very, very tuned into this yeah. uh, and very conscious. and there is a great deal of pressure to become more provocative uh, to be able to get more likes. The other thing, like there, there's a whole boundary thing here, but there's also like a body image thing. Yeah. You know, I have kids, you know, looking at the kinds of pictures that are getting likes and then thinking, could they ever get that kind of a like themselves? What would they have to do to get their body to look like that so that they can get those likes too? So it is a very sort of extrinsic selfie world yeah. at the moment. And and that's where I think the danger lies is that we rely on the the likes, uh, you know, the screen clicks or the jabs on a on an iPhone screen of strangers to mm-hmm. to achieve some sense of self worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a completely disconnected world that we're living in, despite uh, you know this misnomer social media that we call it. It's it's anything but. It's uh, well, and that's I think why you have to. And, you know, especially for parents with kids these days, you have to give them that balance. Mm -hmm. You have to give them something else other than likes and shares in that world to be able to make them realize that that is just an online world Mm -hmm. and there is a connection to the real world, you know, and and how do you do that? Because like you said, there's no roadmap. Right. This is, I remember the first, com- getting the first computer in my house, mm-hmm. right? And now people in my generation in their 30s, we're having, or people even yo- uh, younger than me are having babies. Mm-hmm. And there's, we, we didn't live through this, No, right? I remember being associate dean with Ted as dean um, in that period of time where I saw my first iPad. 
Yeah. I saw my first iPod. Yeah. I heard of Facebook for the first time, you know, and that doesn't seem like that long ago. No. Right. But, but if you think of how much our world has changed in this short period of time and, 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 and then I think the important thing or what I'm trying to really press is how is this changing life for our children? Yeah. Right. That's and how do how do we ensure that our children grow up in a way that keeps them healthy and safe and progressive and inclusive? Like, how do we do that? I'm wondering, Jillian, thinking back over the years, uh, you you have um, had a successful practice as a clinician for for many many years now. Mm-hmm. Ha, are are you seeing a, a change in the kind of problems that parents present with with their children as it's relating to the internet? Absolutely, this? like absolutely. I I. I I mean, I've had uh, children stumbling on something and being traumatized uh, to accidental exposures in a big, like a big audience, an accidental exposure um, online. Uh, I've had uh, children taking photos of each other and sharing them and then police in my office mm-hmm. uh, more than more than a dozen times. Wow. You know, so there's there's a, a, a much more critical pressing kind of scenario that children are living through. I've had children, um, if you if you think about sort of what we might have done at parties in high school, yeah. you know, that I would never want my parents to have seen, whereas, you know, children are, are out learning about themselves, learning about their sexuality, and then it being taped and shared. You know, I've had, I've had children in my office uh, so humiliated, like humiliated to their core mm-hmm. that they never want to step foot back into a school. And, and so we're tasked with helping that. And I think a, a child psychologist, I've got a, a unique lens and a unique perspective on this because I'm the person parents come to when they're really, really struggling. Um, parents might not tell their, their immediate family. They might not tell their work colleagues. You know, they might not, they might keep something like this very private because it is a very private area, but I'm hearing about it, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, and I'm hearing about it a lot, like not just a little bit, but like a huge amount. Uh, and that's different uh, than I would say five to seven years ago. Yeah, and then out of that comes this book. Right. Right. Out of that comes this book and comes a way that we can have these conversations, both as, you know, parenting units or single parents or whatever, however you parent, um, as well as it's a way to, to say to a friend of yours who, hey, I bought you this, mm-hmm. you know, like you, we don't have to talk about it if you don't want, but I'm here for you if you do want, but I, I have this for you. Right. Um, which is huge, right? That's a huge help um, to be able to have that because, you know, we need to talk about this more, but there is still this undercurrent of um, embarrassment or shame that we right. don't know, or this idea that, you know, because we are able to birth kids, we should know how to raise them, you know? So having, having something like this, that is so accessible that comes from that experience or, or, and as well as your, as your knowledge, right and mm-hmm. um, through your research is fantastic well it's been an interesting journey for me um, I started my research career uh, as in grad school studying HIV infection um, so I wrote my dissertation I did my postdoc uh, in that uh, in that uh, domain um, and transmission and how people mm-hmm. and how young people so I was looking specifically at pediatric HIV infection how we tell children about, being infected, how we tell them maybe that the parent was infected, how we handle uh, safe sex, safe sex practices um, with the risk being HIV um, contraction. You know, th- that that was the risk and that was the worry 
when I was in grad school, Mm -hmm. this is the risk and this is the worry now Mm. um, around similar types of um, safe sexual practices. Um, It's, it's, it's similar. It's very similar. So my work, you know, has, has skirted this issue for many, 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 many years. Mm. I, I, I like that metaphor, the idea of transmission and infection, because in essence, you could think of exposure to the internet and use of it as a kind of meme. Mm-hmm. It's out there. It's an idea that everyone that's alive now is going to have contact with. Mm-hmm. And some families are uh, very low-tech or no-tech, mm-hmm. but most of us live immersed in this stuff. And how do we inoculate ourselves against right. some of the some of the the more dangerous parts of it. Yeah, I, I find it interesting that you use the the term inoculate because that's what we use. That's the term that we've been using uh, at Family Sparks. So with, whether from that very first little app that I, I did back in 2013 about explaining to children where babies come from, my first children's book was Where Do Babies Come From, um, which was designed for the primary uh, and preschool age group. Um, all of these initiatives have really been about getting to kids before they stumble on things online. Mm-hmm. So how do we get to them and explain sexuality and explain things in a way that sets them up uh, to be healthy with a healthy perspective? So, you know, we've talked a lot about boundaries and online things and what's important with that. And um, your title of your book includes sex. And so thinking about, especially now with the accessibility of pornography on the internet um, and how that's changing How's that changing the sexual landscape for kids? Um, Maybe we could talk a little bit more about that area of it and what that means for kids and what what you're seeing or what your thoughts are in relation to the prolific um, amount of pornography online and its accessibility and how that affects children. Right, right. Well, I've, I've, I've noticed some different things and I've noticed different consequences based on the age of the child. Um, and I, I would say that we've seen the the age of online exposure becoming younger and younger. There was an important study out of the University of New Hampshire that indicated that 11 was the average age of exposure. And you see that, that statistic used a lot in, in the literature around this topic. I would say that it's even earlier now. Like that study is now a few years old. I used to see middle school kind of being the age where there would be a lot of a lot of phone calls, and I'm now getting phone calls from elementary schools where children in grades four and five um, are are stumbling upon things. What I notice with the the little ones, I, I was just recently in a school uh, this this week. I was in, at a school where this had happened, and the the little girls were crying when they what like at when there was this accidental exposure. The the children were crying. Um, and when I debriefed with the girls afterwards, they wondered if the person that they saw was being hurt. Um, they wondered if that was actually sex. Like, is that sex? Is that what people, when people talk about sex, is that it? Like they didn't even, you know, um, you know, equate what they were seeing with what they had ever heard about. Mm. Um, they also worried, uh, that they would have to do that kind of thing when they got up. When they got older, you know, that's going to be the expectation for me that that's how I'm supposed to behave. And I don't want to behave like that. So I'm crying because this really scares me that that's something that has to happen. Um, And then I've had other uh, a little bit older, like boys, a little bit older, get into a lot of trouble at school because they hear 
something, they hear a line, a pickup line, or they, they, you know, there's really no uh, conversations around consent in those kinds of videos, mm-hmm. right? And so there was no navigating consent. There was no courtship. There was nothing. It was just kind of like, you know, I feel like it and do you feel like it? Now let's just like tape it, like like two strangers meeting and then there's they're hooking up and there's like a video that's made of it kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so I've had boys go into schools, into hallways, and they've gone and they've they've interacted with the girls with the locker beside them or whatnot in that same way. And then that that girl uh, or boy feels violated. They yeah. feel like that's harassment. So they go and, and tell their parents who tell the principal and then I, you know, have kids getting expelled. But I don't I don't really see it as um you know, necessarily as that child's fault, you know, it is, it is a fault that, you know, like that they did do, they did do something wrong, but I think as a society, we've let them down a little bit. You know, we, we, you know, um, grade five is about when we talk about human sexuality in the curriculum, there was a big uh, push to um, bring that into younger and younger ages. We saw the controversy around sexual education in Ontario, Mm -hmm. where the last government had a sex ed that began in kindergarten, and and now it's out of the curriculum again. There's even a hotline where parents can uh, tell on teachers that are talking about sexual education in class. So I think as a society, we really do need to wake up and understand that we need different sociocultural supports to go alongside of this digital revolution mm-hmm. that we've we've raced ahead in a technological way we also need to put sociocultural supports in place to manage that change mm-hmm. yeah and and i think again reminding ourselves constantly that <clears throat> internet life is not real life mm-hmm. uh, i remember having a grad student many many years ago looking at the whole phenomenon of the internet and and life online and back then students made a distinction they would talk about about irl which was short for in real life, and then their online life. Mm-hmm. But more and more so, we're seeing this convergence or this expectation that what you see on the internet, um, the number of likes you get, the kinds of videos you watch, all of that translates directly into real life, and, and it doesn't. No, we, it doesn't. We know that it's not the same thing. The other, the other part that I think is missing is, like, I think consent and having good conversations around consent is missing. Like, that's, that's, that's really missing. But I think what also is missing is a conversation around courtship, mm-hmm. like just, you know, like that slow unfolding, unraveling of a relationship, um, like, because I think there's this idea that it's instantly accessible. Like you you, you like someone else and, and sex is instantly accessible. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it absolutely doesn't work that way. Um, and kids who think it works that way can, can either ruin relationships or, or they can get into trouble. Well, and that's something, too, that I think, you know, I learned this, how to teach consent to young, young kids through one of my best friends who lived with me and her son lived with me part-time, and she was teaching him consent at three years mm-hmm. old. And it doesn't have to be equated with a sexualized activity no. or anything like that, right? No. Consent is about your body and other people's body, and can I give you a hug? And if the answer is no, then that's okay, because that's her body or his body or whatever. So it's something that I think, you know, yeah, we can't rely on other people or the internet or something else to teach these things to our kids. No, and research has shown that children are are more safe, they're safer, and more able to assert their boundaries when they have 
talk to their parents about the proper body names and what what is okay touching and what is not okay touching around boundaries with really little ones. Mm -hmm. So we know when a when a little one knows the parts of your body that are covered by your bathing suit are private and nobody should be touching that or asking to see it. And if they do, you need to let me know. Um, we know that children who've had that conversation are better able to protect themselves than children who haven't. There have even been cases where children had kind of pet names for their body parts and and police not being able to um, build a case because what the child said you know, right. it, it, it didn't, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't pin an offense on, he touched my woo-woo. Well, what's a woo-woo, right? Yeah. Like you, you can't, you can't easily build a case on that. So we know that we need to have these conversations with really little ones and, and make it developmentally appropriate for that level. Mm -hmm. And then slowly and slowly expand on that conversation over time. You know, the talk is no longer the talk, a one yeah. a one time event, but it's an ongoing evolving conversation mm -hmm. between a parent and a child. Well, Jill, this is amazing work that yeah. you're doing. And uh, it's so timely and it's so important and uh, and it's so, so needed. Thank you. So thanks for coming by and spending yeah. some time with us. We know how busy you are and we just really appreciate the fact that we were able to connect. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Okay.